welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and once again, I'm joined by Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. Good to see you. And uh, As always. Thank you. So in our last couple of episodes, we talked a lot about the Dobbs decision, and uh, we did that in the spirit of discussing the decisions that came down at the end of the term, the major decisions. And it occurs to me that um, as people listen to this podcast, they may have heard two, two uh, threads that may seem like they were in contradiction. On the one hand, um, we, were, we would sometimes recount for you uh, certain memes or threads that appeared in the media about these cases, in this case about Dobbs we've been talking about, and we would say, well, you know, they're saying the sky is falling, we're saying maybe not. Okay, so we're, in other words, kind of minimizing the impact of the decision within, you know, what everyone recognizes was nevertheless an important decision. Um, on the other hand, oh, we're saying, uh, not, but not entirely, because remember, and some of this was damage control, emphasizing right to travel and other things. But remember, we very much said the real. We don't want to minimize the real threat to to women's liberty and equality. Th- posed by the possibility of a national abortion ban. Correct. That, that that's actually the real concern about Dobbs, not this Mississippi law or even the, the Texas law, as long as there's a right to travel. Bad as those outcomes might be for those of us who are pro-choice, we thought that the real concern was about the possibility of a national abortion ban, which, by the way, um, is front and center in a piece that Anna Marie Cox uh, just uh, wrote in the New York Times. But I think, Andy, um, the Wall Street Journal piece that I uh, published was among the first to really highlight that as the, the, the real issue, the, the President Mike Pence signing a national law that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pushes through uh, alongside filibuster reform and that uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy pushes through a Republican House in 2025, in this hypothetical 2025 world, um, yes. signed by a President um, Pence. Or DeSantis. Right. So you're depressing me. But yes. Um, so, yeah. So we're, but at any rate, these are what I would, what I would consider, pro, you know, public policy outcomes. So when we talk about, you know, the, the impact on public policy, on the, you know, the status of the law, the real lives of people day to day of the decisions, um, we took the position that at least for now, the impact might not be as dramatic in the sense that, oh, you know, Griswold is falling. You're not going to be able to use contraception. You're not going to, same-sex marriage is going to be gone. You know, and we say no. That's not really you know what what we think is likely to happen. So these are yeah. We, we thought Griswold, Eisenstadt, Loving, Lawrence, Obergefell were safe. Correct. Okay, but then at the same time, as we're perhaps playing playing it down a bit, um, Akil is saying this is an earthquake. This is you know, and so. Well, what's that about? And the answer there is that this has to do w- with his assessment of the impact on constitutional law uh, and uh, doctrine and how the court makes its decisions going forward. So from now, that I might say method, constitutional method even. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, it had a, a large impact. And we haven't entirely elaborated uh, why and how uh, that has, has been the case. And that's going to be one of the goals of the next couple of podcasts is to show you how while to show you these two types of impact 
the impact on public policy and the impact on constitutional law. And although they do coalesce at some point, um, they aren't the same thing. So, uh, so today we're going to move on from Dobbs with that framework in mind. We're going to talk about the two decisions, the uh, Bruin decision, which is uh, a gun case. As you know, we've already had a couple of episodes uh, on this. We had an episode when there, the oral argument took place, and then we made reference to it after, in the aftermath of the terrible uh, shooting in Uvalde, where we had uh, Adam Winkler on to, to talk about some of the public policy implications and, and issues and considerations. Uh, and, of course, he said at the time, well, let's, let's wait and see what happens with the Bruin case. Now we know what happened with the Bruin case. We're going to give you some analysis on that. And then we're also going to uh, talk about the, um, the Carson case, uh, which is a, uh, um, a case about uh, re- you know, the Establishment Clause, religious freedom, uh, et cetera. So we'll get into that as well. So, but let's start with the Bruin case. So, uh, Akil, the, uh, I would say that the, the media after the Bruin case um, was quite alarmed at this decision. And we had forecast ahead of this decision that uh, New York State was going to lose uh, and indeed they did lose, and we thought they were going to lose on relatively narrow grounds. Is that what happened? We hoped that they would lose on relatively narrow grounds. And if you look at Justice Thomas's opinion for the court, and you only focus on that, you would you might think, well, this is a very, very sweeping opinion. His most ambitious ever. It's originalist in all sorts of ways, or at least it understands itself as originalist in all sorts of sweeping ways. But if you read everything that came out that um, that day, you would notice that there's an important, there are some concurring opinions, and you might notice that the most important concurring opinion was written by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by the Chief Justice. There were three dissenters, and I've already now told you what you need to know. Um, because if there are three dissenters, that means there are only six that are on the, the majority coalition, and they all joined Justice Thomas's opinion. That's true. But without Kavanaugh and Roberts, just doing simple math, you, you don't get to five. So Kavanaugh's opinion is the most important in certain respects to the extent that it limits or identifies certain limiting principles or key facts about the case at hand. And that concurring opinion is actually much more in line with the approach that we proposed in this podcast about how New York, you know, if it was going to lose, could lose narrowly. Um, And just to jump ahead just a bit, the key things that we emphasized were that the New York law gave government officialdom lots of discretion about whether to grant or withhold a a permit to carry a gun in public, a concealed weapon in public. It was highly discretionary in ways that, you know, threatened kind of rule of law values of of equality and, and, and fair process. And it was highly unusual. It was an outlier law. There were only six or so states that had laws like this. So we said those are certain uh, really important limiting principles that make the New York law particularly 
vulnerable. So we said, if you're going to strike down the New York law, emphasize those facts because that leaves open more room for for other states to, to have reasonable gun control. Justice Thomas's opinion for the court mentions these things but doesn't highlight them. The concurrence actually highlights them and and is a more limited analysis in keeping with what we suggested in the previous podcast episodes, almost as if a law clerk, maybe even a justice, was listening to to that episode. So let me read you a part of a paragraph from the concurrence, which summarizes some of these things. This is on page two, at the top of page two of the concurrence. Uh, He says, New York's outlier May issue regime is constitutionally problematic because it grants open-ended discretion to licensing officials and authorizes licenses only for those applicants who can show some special need apart from self-defense. Those features of New York's regime, the unchanneled discretion for licensing officials and the special need requirement, in effect deny the right to carry handguns for self-defense to many ordinary law-abiding citizens. And in the paragraph before that, Andy, and throughout his relatively short opinion, the number 43 appears again and again and again. I think so on the very first page of his concurrence. He says, I join the court's opinion. I write separately to underscore two important points about the limits of the court's decision. So he's not just concurring, but he's saying, listen, I'm I'm kind of writing a limiting concurrence of a certain sort. Justice Kennedy used to do this all the time. You know, he'd be polite enough to join the majority opinion, but then he'd write his own that actually, and then when he was the swing justice, suggested that this is really where the the, the pivot of the court going forward. So then Justice Kavanaugh, very much like his mentor, Justice Kennedy, for whom he clerked and whom he replaces, he says, first... The court's decision does not affect the existing licensing regimes, known as shall-issue regimes, that are employed in 43 states. We think the court addresses only the unusual discretionary licensing regime, known as may-issue regimes, that are employed by six states, including New York. As the court explains New York's outlier may-issue regime... Yeah, so, but, but he's, he's careful to say, oh, the court itself mentions that uh, point about 43 and 6, and indeed it does. It's not integrated tightly into the originalist analysis of the majority's opinion, but I promise you if you just, and it's a very long and ambitious opinion, but on page one of the majority opinion, after citing Heller and McDonald, which are both flamboyantly originalist opinions, the, the, the two most important preceding this one by the Supreme Court, Heller in 2008 per Justice Scalia and McDonald in 2010 per Justice Alito, the first sentence invokes Heller and McDonald, and now we have a third justice writing a, a third flamboyantly originalist decision, Thomas, you know, in Bruin. So Thomas in Bruin, Alito in McDonald, Scalia in Heller. So it mentions those cases and saying, we build on Heller and, and McDonald. This is saying McDonald is a really important case, which I've always in, insisted upon. Next paragraph, first page still. They go out of way say, in 43 states, the government issues licenses, blah, 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 and in this shall issue way. So if you just did a control F with, the, you know, 43, you'd see that the, the majority doesn't emphasize this again and again and again. But, oh, Justice Kavanaugh does in this short concurrence joined by Justice Chief Justice Roberts. Let's just count, Andy, together how many times he mentions 43. So on the first page, he says 43. On the second page... 
of Kavanaugh's concurrence, 43, and another reference to 43. And, so four um, times. Another, yeah. Okay. And how long is the whole thing? It's three pages. In three pages, he's got four mentions of 43. That's the key. And our audience shouldn't be surprised by that because I've been uh, arguing throughout that the counting method is an important one. It's actually the Glucksberg analysis that was front and center in Dobbs. You see, count existing states, not just states circa 1791, not just states in 1868, states today. New York was an outlier, and that makes this a more limited decision than you might think. There's lots of other language, and if you're a lower court opinion, you've got to take seriously everything, but, but Kavanaugh is actually in three pages, four times saying 43, 43, 43, 43. This is a, an outlier statute. Now, why doesn't it feel that way to the audience? Because or the media, because New York is the media capital of the world. Our audience are coastal folks. The the six states, and I know that doesn't add up to fifty. Uh, Vermont is the fiftieth. Are coastal people? They're you know the main law schools in America are in coastal places, and we are the outlier states. This feels different because the Warren Court, in effect, imposed northern and eastern values and consensus on the deep south and now this is the revenge of the south and the midwest against the northern coasts and the, yeah, the well, northern. I, think, I think it also and, doesn't feel that way because people read them the majority opinion the majority opinion is you know 78 pages long and it for seven no one pages. other than you and i and you read these things they they're filtered by a national media that also doesn't do originalism, that doesn't get it quite candidly. And they're saying this is more sweeping than it need be. Now, who, who, all I'm saying is Kavanaugh is once again going out of his way to actually move toward the middle. In, in Dobbs, he didn't move all the way to Roberts. In, in this one, he actually joins hands with Roberts. And they're the pivot on the court. Without them, there's no majority for Justice Thomas's approach. And he writes, he says, you know, clearly, I join the court's opinion and write separately to underscore two important points about the limits of the court. Not, not the sweep, the limits of the court's decision. Now, Amy Coney Barrett also writes a, uh, a concurrence. Yeah, and we haven't heard that much from her, you know, in the other big cases of the term. So it's a really interesting concurrence. It's a concurrence about method. And she uh, was a law professor, and she wrote about originalism, and she sees that there's a really interesting move about method in the middle of the Thomas opinion that she wants to, to highlight. But, but before we get to her, let's maybe talk just a little bit more, Andy, about the Thomas opinion, and then we'll come back to Justice Barrett's eagle-eyed attention to, I would say, the most interesting method move in the majority opinion. Since we are talking, you know, first about the actual impact of the decision as opposed to the constitutional law implications, um, would you say then that the impact of this decision is mostly limited to this business about shall issue um, versus may issue, you know, discretionary uh, regimes in concealed carry? Yes. So yes, this is only about six states. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not... Because if you if you read again, if you read the majority opinion, there's a lot of stuff in there about uh, how 
Um, the only thing that matters is whether is is history that any regulation has to conform with the historical regulations, which seems strange since the uh, you know the nature of the firearms may not have anything to do with the nature of the firearms in the past. It so it makes a lot you know it, it talks about that um, you know at great length. It talks about uh, whether weapons that are in com- that weapons have to be in common use at the time. Uh, if they or if they are in common use at the time, basically you have a lot of trouble regulating them under the uh, scheme laid out in the majority opinion, and that comes that's in Heller also to to some extent. So these are somewhat alarming, uh, you know, dictates. And you're saying that for the most part they echo Heller and they're not really anything new, or to the extent that they are, they're limited by the concurrence. And that. If you're a low court judge, you have to take every, you know, seriously everything. But why is this so relentlessly original, as it were, all the way down? So let me explain what I mean by all the way down and why I, as an originalist, think that originalism goes so far and actually not much further. I think originalism, rightly done, is about constitutional fundamentals and we, Andy, in an earlier episode, actually uh, uh, mentioned John Ely in, in a Dobbs episode. Here's a quote from, from John Ely. The, though the identification of a constitutional connection is only the beginning of analysis, it's a necessary beginning. The court is under an obligation to trace its premises to the charter from which it derives its authority. So for me, that's originalism. Um, sensibly understood. You know, you, you start with the Constitution and you try to figure out, through careful attention to its text and its enacting context, kind of the, what it basically was all about, what was clearly what they were trying to do, they being the, the people who adopted that provision, what they were trying to do and what the, basically they weren't trying to do. So at the very least, trying to figure out in your head what was the easy case that the clause did apply to and what was something that it pretty clearly and easily didn't apply to. Now, that's only the beginning of analysis because the world changes. You're going to have to apply that to today's weapons, to today's media, if you're talking about the First Amendment, you know, Internet, radio, television, like. But So you have lots of complicated things that you're going to need to, to do. But you first start by trying to figure out what were they trying to do and what weren't they trying to do? What's the big idea? Okay? And as I said, I think it's useful to think about what my colleague and friend Jed Rubenfeld calls the paradigm case, the clear case of inclusion, and I would say the clear case of exclusion, what clearly weren't they trying to do? Okay. So, but I'm not sure originalism sensibly goes much further than that, because once you've figured out the basic foundation, the big idea, you're going to need other tools of analysis, doctrinal tests and formulations to, to make that big idea work in today's world, which is a different world. Okay? So I'm not sure that every single aspect of doctrine is sensibly going to be determined by a kind of detailed originalist inquiry. Instead, we need to ask Here's what I mean by the big question. Is there a right to use a firearm outside of a military context? You know, was it just about militias or something? Was it about a right to keep a gun, for example, in the home 
for self-protection, even beyond, above and beyond the military? Was it a, about a right to carry a gun outside the home, even beyond a military context? And that's about it for originalism. Now I'm going to give you reasons for thinking that Heller was basically, and McDonald were basically right on those questions, and, and, and probably Bruin too, Thomas's opinion, I'll give you the best argument for all of that. But beyond that, that there really is a right to have a gun in the home and even beyond the home for self-protection, even outside a militia context, I'm not sure originalism will answer all the other fine-green questions. Well, what kind of gun, and are there special places where it can be prohibited, and why and how and where? And, and Thomas wants to use originalism to answer all of those secondary and tertiary questions. And I'm an originalist, and I'm not sure actually originalism sensibly applies to all of that, what my colleague Jack Balkin calls construction. How do you know where originalism stops uh, and construction begins? You know, how do you know when the, you know, when you touch an eye, whether it's too loose, you know, or too firm or something, you know, that's actually because you're an expert in practice and you develop a sense of touch and feel and, you know, and, and you can tell if it's too puffy or not. I couldn't, but you have a feel and, and you have the little uh, puff tests and all the rest for a glaucoma and all the rest. So this is what it means to be, you know, an expert is to sort of where kind of one tool sees, you know, when do you use this scalpel versus that one, you know, um, this lens versus that one. Okay. Yeah, so, well, what it means to um, be an expert also means to know that the puff test is not something that you should use. Oh, okay. Well, as you see, and, and, and now this is what happens whenever I go beyond my area of expertise, you see. Why is Thomas trying to push originalism maybe past the point that, that I would? You know, I would just try to use originalism for the big picture. Here's what it is. Here's what it isn't. And then we're going to be... He's doing it because lower court judges for the last decade, in his view, aren't taking seriously the fundamental right. They're just balancing it away because they, they basically didn't like Heller. Heller was decided in the teeth of the general consensus of lower federal court judges and McDonald too, and he thinks they haven't gotten the message, so they're using doctrinal tests a la Breyer that balance the thing away using a kind of deep state, bureaucratic, elitist, East Coast cost-benefit analysis um, that treats the Second Amendment as a second-class right. I'm trying to get inside his head and use his memes. That's what he thinks. They've turned it into a second-class right. For the longest time, they, um, they being like the Warren Court, they had robust accounts of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth and Sixth Amendments and, and, they, and the Second Amendment languished in obscurity. And uh, then Heller came along, um, and lower courts kind of ignored the Second Amendment, and Heller came along and lower courts still ignored it, and then the city of Chicago came along and they still ignored it. So he's trying to come up with tests that are going to be more protective, um, he thinks, if applied by lower court judges who are not really with the program. So, so don't doesn't that doesn't that uh, tell you something though? I mean, in other words, you're saying yeah. the Second Amendment is a dead letter for 200 years. Okay, then the Supreme Court, you know, in its in its uh, you know majesty, you know, rises and brings it back from the dead, and and yet, you know, it doesn't age well in in a in a phrase that you that you've used to describe Roe. Now, I understand it's a different problem, but. Right. You know, meanwhile, the lower court judges are pushing back. The states are pushing back to some degree. 
So they're no, it does not. not tell you anything. Okay, so this is you, you're, you, 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 this is this is the standard, you know, media narrative. And these are my friends also, and they don't always know what they're talking about. So let me actually push back on, you know, all of that. So we've invited folks onto the podcast, and we hope they come. Joan Biskupic, I. I, I adore her. She probably mentioned multiple times, oh, you know, Heller was against the grain of um, what lower courts had done before. Yes, but they're lower courts. They're inferior courts. Their job is not actually to tell the Supreme Court what to do. Their job is to follow what the Supreme Court has done and or maybe anticipate what the Supreme Court will do. That's the difference between an inferior court and a Supreme Court. So it's actually not their call. And they're not trained as constitutional experts. Now, maybe the Supreme Court justices aren't either, but they get a steadier diet of Supreme Court cases, and they've got more time. They don't have very many cases. And so they're, even if they're not already experts on constitutional, they're supposed to be become experts. That's what summers are for for them. So if there's a discrepancy between lower courts and the Supreme Court, it is in general not that strong an argument, um, even though the press keeps thinking it is, but they don't know how to do constitutional law, and dissenters sometimes make this argument too, and it's just not a good argument. Gee, the lower courts think otherwise. <laughs> yes, the key word is lower there. Constitutionally, it's inferior. So that's not the case. Now, what are the states doing? Andy? Well, say it with me. Four, 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 say it with me. Forty-three, 43 right, right. to six. Okay, there you go. And here's what the dissenters say in Bruin. Oh, some of these forty-three are of recent vintage. Right, you are, boss. You know, Justice Breyer. You know, uh, thinks this. But you were the same folks who were objecting in. Dobbs to actually just freezing things in place in 1868 or something like that. And I said, actually, Dobbs didn't do it. It it used a Glucksberg analysis that talks about more dynamically existing state practice, which is what we think about also in cruel and unusual punishment practice. It's about counting existing states in addition to, you know, alongside counting states circa 1868 or 1791. So, yeah, here's the point. In fact, the, I'm, I'm not a gun person. You see, you know, people need to remember that I've never had a gun and they scare me and I don't really love guns, truth be told. But the folks who actually are robust gun people have been winning in state after state after state with these shall issue laws. Caught me by surprise when I first you know, learned about this. I said, uh, I need to double check this. 43 states really? And Paul Clement who argued this case as he argued and won and won it, as he argued and won the McDonald case, led off with that fact at oral argument. And when I saw that, I said, oh, New York's, you know, halfway to losing with just that fact alone. So it is not true. You see that the states have been pushing back against um, all this. They've actually, and, and we have to start winning elections, and, and then the 43 might change, and there is the lock-in issue that we have identified and are, are concerned about. But it's not the case, Andy. It's just this, this is, you know, what you get if you only read the New York Times and hang out on the Upper uh, West Side. Rizé Barzas. Yes, and, which, and Andy always brings me the best 
bagels and the best. What's that place with the, the locks? That with it's, it's 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 tissue thin. It's just spectacular. I don't know um, if I want to tell because I don't Siddell's? want any longer of a line than we already have. Yeah, Sedell's. Sedell's. Yeah, it's on. Yes. Oh, and Andy always. Yeah, he, he he brings me the best locks and bagels. Okay, and I love New York, but what I'm saying is, you know, you're going to get a skewed view of America. That's why Kavanaugh says four times in three pages, forty-three. Okay, so um, all right, so I'm, I interrupted your your analysis about uh, about you know how we find the line in originalism and 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 so yeah so i I I, truthfully i think that justice thomas's opinion for the court maybe is trying to squeeze too much juice from the the lemon of originalism and i i like lemons i'm not mocking uh them i am so but i think originalism only goes so far but i'd explain why he's trying to go even further there has to be um, an analogy between a gun control measure today and some gun control measure that was prominent in earlier eras or something. I'm not sure about all of that. Okay. Um, but here's, but I'm explaining why he's pushing this far because he thinks lower court judges are just balancing away the right. And by the way, the law in Heller was an outlier. It prohibited people from use, having a gun in their home for self-protection and very few states had done that. And the law in city of Chicago versus McDonald was an outlier. So the outlier approach has explanatory power, you see, if we just on Occam's razor grounds. And it is Glucksburg, and I told you about it in Dobbs, so it's a more comprehensive, and I just mentioned that it helps explain cruel and unusual punishment case law. So I'm saying that's a really important fact to keep your eye on. It's not quite originalist, you know, just to count states today. What are the best originalist moves in Bruin? Here's the, let me make the, the strongest, if I can, originalist case, and then we can talk about the key concurrence of Justice Barrett, who picked up on one of the interesting uh, methodological moves. Okay. These are, it's a claim of right. It's no different than the abortion right, or the privacy right, or right of counsel, appointed counsel in Gideon or something. You have a litigant who says, I have a right. And our friend Neil Katyal, I think, had a tweet saying, gee, you know, they don't, you know, they're not going to protect reproductive rights, but, but gun rights, you know, they're, they're gung-ho. And I'm thinking, yes, Neil, if you, if you are the former acting solicitor general of the United States and a Supreme Court litigator and your world is case law, this thing seems weird to you because the case law is row, 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 it's settled and casey and, and lots of cases all about that and not very many on guns, just Heller and McDonald. So if that's your world, that's going to seem upside down. What are you talking about? That you're going to protect, you know, guns more than um, reproductive rights? So if, if you start through the world of cases, this seems upside down. But if you're an originalist, you say, well, actually... Arguably, there is a textual reference, um, not to the word guns, but to arms in the, in the Second Amendment, and not so much when it comes to, it's not just that abortion isn't mentioned, it's that there's not a liberty clause as such, there's just a due process clause, and that's our last episode, you see. So here's the, here's the, here are the case for rights in America. I'm going to do it through enumerated rights and unenumerated rights. I'm going to do the, the, the quick analysis enumerated rights. You look to the Second Amendment, you say the right of the people to keep, uh, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And you say, well, yeah, it was about m- militias at the founding, and 
Scalia just kind of ignores that, and I wouldn't. He just disregards uh, that, and I don't think Keller is a great opinion because I, I, I think he, um, Scalia was um, not actually a very gifted originalist quite. He was doing something. He didn't know enough history, quite honestly, and I said that at the time in my critique in the Harvard Law Review, and we posted that in, in a previous episode, but without even fighting the whole text of the amendment. Okay, it says malicious, but here's actually an historical fact. People in Lexington and Concord in 1775 who were Minutemen, part of the militia, um, actually kept guns in their homes. They did. They didn't just keep them in a collective storehouse, although they also did that, and the British were trying to capture that in Concord in April 1775. But people had guns in their homes, and they bore them um, they carried them not just between the kitchen and the living room, but carried them outside the home. And they used them to a- absolutely enfilade and spray the Brits along a 20-mile road r- as they retreated from Concord to Boston in April 1775. And they used them in Bunker Hill. Okay, so that's the founding argument that they're, you know, guns in homes and outside homes, and they're, you know, now here's the counter, because I don't think the founding is actually so strong. Oh, and you could use your gun to protect your home against uh, Indians, some of whom were allied, will eventually ally themselves with the Brits and who previously had been allied with the French, you know, and you can use them against uh, lions and tigers and bears, and you can use them against um, uh, pirates and bad guys, and they're part of a larger, you know, defense force, uh, um, homeland defense force in a world that doesn't have the police. Okay, so that's reading the Second Amendment very broadly, um, um, but here's the strongest counter. Yeah, even if there was right to private arms bearing, even for self-defense, even not just in the home but outside the home, that was in a world that really did have a militia structure, and we don't have that anymore. We, you know, we have professional police and an army, and so we don't really have you know, the Minutemen anymore. That's why I don't think Heller does the job as Scalia wanted, but here's now the second fact. Forget the founding. Our, the rights in America are the product not just of the American Revolution, but the Civil War experience. And after the Civil War, the idea was blacks had a right to have guns in their homes for self-protection. That's the Freedmen's Bureau Act. And they actually talk about a right to a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. And, and for them, they meant even women, even people who weren't part of the militia, every citizen had that. And that's a different vision, but you have to take that seriously because, strictly speaking, actually, Shitty Chicago versus McDonald's is a 14th Amendment case. So it was Bruin and involved states. And I think the Reconstruction had implications for even rights against the federal government. I'm not going to go into all the details now, we'll do that in later episodes. But if you focus, as an originalist does, on the 14th Amendment, clearly there's a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. That's what the Freedmen's Bureau Act was all about. And we did episodes on that, and we, we posted pictures in which you see that, Freedmen's Bureau. And the Freedmen's Bureau statute was a companion statute to the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment says everyone born in America is a citizen. What it means to be a citizen, have privileges and immunities of citizenship. And one of those, the, free, the companion Freedmen's Bureau bill said was a right to keep and bear arms for personal use, not just for militia use. And even women had that right. I, in work that I did in the 1990s, only went so far as gun in the home for self-protection. And that's Heller and City of Chicago versus McDonald. This case says, oh, when you go outside the home, what's the best originalist argument for that? And even outside the militia context, 
the, here's the key fact. It's buried in a long, you know, epically long, ambitious opinion by Clarence Thomas. It's his most ambitious. This is the first time he writes for the court a big am- opinion on a clause that hasn't been glossed by lots and lots of previous cases. Here's the key aha fact when you just clear away all the chaff. One of the most famous cases in American history says, just as a matter of fact, just everyday understanding, well, if blacks were citizens, here's what citizenship means. Citizenship means a right to keep and carry guns wherever you go for self-protection. That's what this very famous case says. It's a case called Dred Scott, but everyone knows it. If blacks were citizens, they'd have rights, uh, free blacks, not slaves, free blacks. If free blacks, people born free or freed by their masters, um, if they actually really were citizens as opposed to something else, it's just free blacks who were sub-citizens. If they were citizens, they would have all the, and this is the phrase that Dred Scott uses, the privileges and immunities of citizens, which include, they say, liberty of speech, but also the right to keep and carry guns wherever they went. So just to, just to be clear here, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's never a good idea from an argu- argumentation point of view to be citing Dred Scott with approval, um, as, we're, as, as we're doing here. But, um, but of course, this is not a legal finding. You know, it's not really a ruling that the court is making that, oh, citizens have this, this privilege and immunity, but rather it's stating what was the common understanding at the time. It's That's- a really prominent statement of a widely, but every person in America has now seen it because Dred Scott is such a famous case. Okay, And here's what the framers of the 14th Amendment did. Knowing Dred Scott, they said, damn it, blacks are citizens. Everyone born in America is a citizen, white or black. And, and all citizens have the privileges and immunities of citizenship, knowing that one of those privileges and immunities would be the right to keep and carry guns wherever they go, which is what the Freedmen's Bureau Bill was all about. You see, I'm putting the pieces together. And they, Dred Scott said, if blacks were citizens, they, you know, this is what that would be. So they can't be citizens. And the 14th Amendment, you need to understand. I'm not saying Dred Scott with approval so much as I'm saying they are rejecting, you know, Dred Scott. Dred Scott says, since gun carrying, gun toting is a privilege of citizenship, blacks can't be citizens. And the 14th Amendment says, oh, yes, they can. And we understand that this is a privilege of citizenship. Okay, and that's what the Freedmen's Bureau Bill is all about. That's originalism going beyond the text to the context. And I'm, I'm actually saying, actually, it's not just the house, the home, um, because Dred Scott is saying to keep and carry arms wherever they went. And the logic of self-protection of the Freedmen's Bureau is blacks can't count on the cops to protect themselves, the local constabulary, the sheriffs. Now, you flash forward. You say, oh, well, New York has this discretionary regime. You have to convince us that you're a good enough person to have a gun, and it's very discretionary. And from a 14th Amendment perspective, who do you think you know, gets the guns and who, doesn't, who qualifies the permit? Well, the rich white people are going to get the permits and the poor black people aren't. And so if I pull away all the other stuff, I'm actually now showing you the best originalist argument for Bruin, which travels through these key facts about the 1860s. Put aside the 1790s because we don't have a militia structure. Now here's the key method point, and then I'll do one other thing talking about unenumerated rights. Key method point. In one of the most important passages in modern Supreme Court history, in my view, and, and I'm very biased on this and people will see why, 
Justice Thomas for the court says, if you're going to do originalism and thinking about the Bill of Rights, maybe you have to think about what Bill of Rights meant, like the Second Amendment, not just in 1791, maybe that was all about militias or something, but what it was understood to mean in 1868. And in 1868, it wasn't just about militias. It was about women. And blacks weren't voters in every place. And if you couldn't vote, you often couldn't be in the militia, but you still had a right to have a gun for self-protection, not just in your home, but when you went abroad. So he's got this key formulation that maybe we should be focusing, if we're good originalists, on 1868 and its history and not just 1791. Huge method move. Let me actually read you the passage and our audience, just spirit of full disclosure, will understand why, if they want to discount what I just said, you know, they're, they're entitled to do so. We also acknowledge there is an ongoing scholarly debate on whether courts should primarily rely on the prevailing understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 when defining its scope, as well as the scope of the right against the federal government. Citing a couple of scholars, one of whom says, when the people adopted the 14th Amendment, to existence, they readopted the original Bill of Rights and did so in a manner that invested these original 1791 texts with new 1868 meanings. That's citing one of my uh, former students, Professor Kurt Lash. There's another site that I'll mention in just a moment. Back to Thomas. We need not address this issue today because, as we explained below, the public understanding of the right to keep and bear arms in both 1791 and 1868 was, for all relevant purposes, the same with respect to public carry. Now, again, I'm not so sure that's exactly true, because in 1791, the people who get to carry arms arguably are connected to the militia, and in 1868, it's about everyone, including women. It's severed from the militia, so I'm not sure that's true. But he's saying there's this interesting question about whether we should just be looking at 1791, original Bill of Rights, or 1868, and not just as about rights against the states, but even to the extent that these new understandings of rights feed back, apply against the federal government. And Andy, now you'll, you'll let the cat out of the bag and tell the, the audience why they might want to discount all of this, because there is one other citation here. Right. So the primary cite here is to Akil's uh, book, 1998 book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. That's on pages 14 from the preface and 223 and 243. Um, and so, look, of course I'm going to think it's significant because I'm cited. Jaundiced uh, audience member might think. And you're entitled to think that. But I'm saying this is a really big conceptual move. This was the move at the heart of my book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. This built on articles that I wrote in the early 1990s, a book that I published in the late 1990s. It, it was widely um, it was well-received. It won lots of prizes, lots of citations from scholars. And, and the Supreme Court, but never for this point, which is actually part of the central point of the book, that what we call the Bill of Rights is at least as much a product of the 1860s as the 1790s. Indeed, even the very phrase Bill of Rights, in part, which is what we call the early amendments, they don't call themselves the Bill of Rights. You won't see that, those words in Amendments 1 through 10. But we call them the Bill of Rights in part because of the Civil War experience and our understandings of each of them, speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise, non-establishment, Fourth Amendment, a jury trial, but also the right to keep and bear arms was importantly modified, inflected by the Civil War and the 1860s. That's the thesis of the book. 
and now the Supreme Court. And I said, if you're a serious originalist, you got to focus on this issue. It raises all sorts of complexities. And Thomas is focusing on just that issue and saying, well, we don't need to decide that today, but maybe for a later day. And that's what Justice Barrett is going to weigh in on. But before I get to her, okay, I've made an argument. You could say it comes from the Second Amendment because they kept guns in their homes and they bore them outside their homes. The counter in Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, the counter is that's when you had a militia, and which we don't have anymore. The stronger argument is in 1868, people understood that blacks were citizens. What it meant to be a citizen was to have privileges and immunities, and one of those core privileges and immunities was a right to keep and carry arms wherever you went. Not, not bear arms, actually keep and carry guns wherever you went. Not just bear. Bear arms might be understood as a kind of term of art in a military use, but they said carry weapons, carry guns. And, and Dred Scott said it, but the Reconstruction Republicans repeated it, and they said, we, we mean it. We mean for blacks to be full and equal citizens, and here's what that means. And, and they need it in part for self-protection because they can't count on the local constabulary. And you could say that's relevant to New York, which sets up a discretionary system in which the insiders get the permits and the outsiders and underclass don't. Final point before we get to Justice Barrett's concurrence. Forget all of that. Forget this. Imagine there weren't a Second Amendment at all. There are unenumerated rights in America. Ninth Amendment. And the 14th Amendment says there are privileges and immunities, not just procedural rights, but substantive rights above and beyond all the ones enumerated um, because they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't textually list all the things that no state can make uh, or enforce any law which shall abridge. They just said, in effect, no state can make or enforce any law which shall abridge fundamental rights. And if a right of contraception is a fundamental right, whether it's enumerated or not, See Griswold. And if Glucksburg, uh, the heart of the Dobbs case, says the way you find fundamental rights in part is by doing a tally of existing state practices, um, and, and if there's a consensus that most states protect a certain privilege or immunity or liberty or freedom, that's strong evidence that, that that's a fundamental thing that the other states, the outlier states, have to also respect. If that's the Glucksburg framework, if that's what explains, let's say, contraception in Griswold, if that's what also helps explain Lawrence versus, and, and Harlan mentions this fact in the companion case to Griswold, this outlier analysis, and if that's important in Glucksburg, and Glucksburg is all about that, and if that's important in Dobbs, which talks in footnote 30, 47 about outliers, and if that's important in Lawrence versus Texas, where the court actually does an outlier analysis and counts them, it's important here, too. And now you see the link to Kavanaugh. Say it with me. 43. 43 states actually you know, are much more protective of this right than is New York. They're shall issue rather than may issue. They don't give government officialdom the same kind of unfettered discretion that this handful of outlier states does. So whether, so he's got an argument from 1791. I think it's kind of not... It's it's uh, it's arguable, but not, not you know absolutely rock solid, and that's why I thought Scalia and Heller couldn't quite close the deal without reference to the Fourteenth Amendment. But when you bring in the Fourteenth Amendment, 
I've just given you the reasons, uh, Freedmen's Bureau and, and the rest. Well, that's a pretty strong originalist argument. And even if you don't buy either of those, this, this is like you know, three different pillars, you know, like I, you know, for ISL, three different pillars for the Bruin results. 1791, okay, it's a little bit of a shaky pillar, but not r- preposterous. 1868, a very strong pillar when you understand the Freedmen's Bureau bill. And unenumerated rights analysis, Glucksburg, um, the outlier analysis, very, uh, very, very strong. Say it with me, 43. And then we'll talk about Amy Coney Barrett's concurrence. So, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't think we were going to get into the question of unenumerated rights today, but if, if the right were enumerated, then it wouldn't necessarily yield to accounting analysis. In other words, if there's a, uh, you know, if, if, 40, if 49 states pass a law tomorrow saying that, uh, you know, it's against the law to, to not salute the flag, um, you know, the court is not going to uphold that. Um, the rights claimant wins either way. If she can show it's an enumerated right, that's it. But then the question is, like, you know, what doctrinal framework to use to implement that, you know. Um, but if she, if she can prove it's in the Constitution, and then, there, again, there's going to be some doctrinal tests about how to operationalize it. But if something is just firmly rooted in constitutional, explicit constitutional text, you win. But even if not, if, um, if it's an unenumerated right above that minimum, you can also win. But you're right if... States start to deviate away from a fundamental right that's in the Constitution. You, the rights claimant still wins because they, if it's in the Constitution as a right, it's got to be amended out of it. Right, but what I'm what I'm getting at here is that if it, if if you you could make the case based on everything you just said, that the that Heller is wrong, that the Second Amendment you know is irrelevant to this, that the Fourteenth Amendment is where the right is found that it's actually an unenumerated right, and, and therefore this notion that the behavior of states today is irrelevant would be discarded. Um, well, Heller would still be right because on its facts, it's easy and obvious. That's why Scalia took an easy point. case and, and right. made it hard because D.C. was a dramatic outlier. And now you see why it's... It's frustrating to me that the world thinks, oh, Scalia is, is the great avatar of originalism and all the rest. No, Heller's not so great. You know, re- read my commentary on Heller, which actually um, gives you a, a, a reason to think this was an easy result that Scalia made hard because he refused to actually rely on Reconstruction, which was his best argument. Um, because he never read Bill of Rights, Creation, and Reconstruction and didn't know any of that. He actually didn't. He's not a reader the way Clarence Thomas is. And because he's so resolutely against unenumerated rights, even though the Constitution actually affirms unenumerated rights. So he had, um, uh, as we say, issues. I'm sure, you know, as do I and, yeah, so and as, me, as do we all. Let me remake my case here because what you just said doesn't undo my, my case, okay? Because um, I'm saying Heller was wrong in declaring it an enumerated right in the Second Amendment, okay? You, so, one could think that. One could that, think that. that, that yes. One yes. could think that. Okay. So then one could say, okay, given, given that, now you have a 14th Amendment analysis Fine. It's a privilege or immunity. It's an unenumerated right. Fine. Um, but that means that it's not frozen at that point, that it's subject to the counting analysis, and that if, if states behaved 
let's say, differently than they are today, and suddenly changed all their state constitutions and started, you know, in, uh, taking out you know, provisions uh, in support of gun rights, then the court would have to reconsider. So that all that would add up to, and and actually Kavanaugh is helping us out here with that, if you believe that, because he's saying, oh, outlier analysis is relevant. Yes, yes. Um, but I, there are three pillars, Andy, and I think you've conflated pillars two and three. First pillar is the founding, it's shaky. Third pillar is unenumerated rights, outliers, counting. Fine, and then it matters what the numbers are. And, and, and we got up to 43, but if it, we started to trend in the other direction, that would be hugely relevant. But the second pillar is the framers of the 14th Amendment thought that it was a core privilege and immunity of citizenship to be able to keep and carry guns wherever you go. It might okay. be, but that doesn't mean it's enumerated. So it could be core, but it isn't necessarily enumerated. But the originalism, as I said, pays attention to what they thought the core right was. So there's a nice question. Yes, they didn't say in the text of the 14th Amendment that there was a right to keep and carry guns wherever you went. But they said it, actually, in a companion statute. So you keep saying, oh, it's unenumerated. unenumerated. No, I don't know about that. that um, I'm saying that there's a nice question whether they meant to you know, freeze, at least as a minimum, certain rights that they thought were absolutely core. Let me say it a different way. Suppose they misread. The Second Amendment is enumerated. It's textual. Let's agree, Andy, that you and I think the original Second Amendment is only about militia use. Arms bearing is only military. But if they didn't think that, and they thought they were incorporating the Second Amendment and incorporating it as they understood it, and they understood it in a more Scalia-like way about a right to have a gun you know, for self-protection, regardless of what actually may have been true in 1791, then actually, arguably, Andy, it is an enumerated right. It's the Second Amendment as glossed by the 14th. And now you see why that paragraph is so important, because that's what that paragraph by Thomas is all about, whether it's 1791 understandings or 1868 understandings of the words of the Second Amendment when it comes to this technical issue called incorporation. And he says, Thomas does, it doesn't matter because we, the majority, think that for all relevant purposes it was the same. And I said, oh, I'm not so sure it was. Well, I think this all matters because I, I, because I think that it comes down to whether or not things get frozen in the 19th century or whether they're right. subject to, um, you know, especially when it comes down to questions of, of reasonable regulations and that sort of thing. And, right. uh, and although... But I'm, not, but I'm not conceding that this is unenumerated because they might have said, no, certain things that are enumerated in the First Amendment, free speech, free press, free exercise, they're enumerated in the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and carry um, arms, uh, they keep and bear arms. So these are enumerated, they're already in the Constitution, um, in the text. But... The question is whether we're going to read those words through the lens, the prism of 1791 understandings or 1868 understandings, or whether we're going to say, and my claim is maybe you win um, if you're a rights claimant, if you can prevail either under 
reconstructions analysis or an unenumerated rights Glucksberg state counting today analysis. Either way, if you could win under either of those, you win whether it's a right that I like or a right that I don't like personally. Or you can say that, yes, it's incorporated, but it's incorporated by way of the Ninth Amendment, which is incorporated. So, Oh, that's another can of worms, Andy. Yeah, so there you go again. So we'll go, back, <laughs> we'll go back to this at some point. But, uh, we will. But, we but, will. But you can see, uh, but what, one thing that this does illustrate is why we should care that the court is paying attention to this question now about 1868 versus 1791. You know, because this is not just about the fact, oh, look, Akil was cited. Hey, look at this. Let's talk about it. No, it's, it's actually, this is actually a very important because it, because it does lead to a lot of interesting uh, approaches to, to, to theories of rights um, that have a it, lot of implications now. It's going to be central, in my view, to the Karsten case, whether you think about church and state as they were understood in the original First Amendment or church and state as those ideas were understood in 1868. It's going to explain why Justice Sotomayor's dissent just gets it wrong literally from the first paragraph because she actually, I think she doesn't correctly understand 1791, but in any event... That's a case about Maine, a state, and the relevant date is 1868. But this is, Andy, what Amy Coney Barrett highlights in her concurrence. She's not writing to limit the policy sweep or something like that. So you identified at the beginning, well, we can look at the policy effects and the the methodological uh, jurisprudential issues. Kavanaugh is trying to limit the policy sweep by by saying 43 and, and too much discretion outlier 43 too much discretion she's saying that majority is teeing up a real because she was a scholar before she was a a a judge and and now a justice she sees that this 1791 versus 1868 issue is a very important one she says we don't decide it's a day but but stay tuned she appreciates the deep methodological significance of of this little aside so she, she brings up two points, and uh, I have to say the first one occurred to me as well as I was reading the, the decision, so I don't blame her for, for mentioning it, reading the opinion, rather. Um, she says, the, first, the court does not conclusively determine the manner and circumstances in which post-ratification practice may bear on the original meaning of the Constitution. And, you know, I think as you read the original opinion, it's very confusing because they go through the history and they go all the way up to almost 1900 in looking and trying to establish what the Keel uses the term liquidation uh, in his book, uh, the words that made us to where to, to describe the process by which the words of the constitution uh, took on more meaning in the original practice, because we, you know, if you weren't sure what something meant, well, this is what Congress and George Washington did with it. So that's what it meant, um, at least in part. And uh, so that's what she's referring to here. But, the, but Clarence Thomas goes all the way up to almost 1900 at some points uh, as he analyzes that. And so I think she takes some issue with that. And that's what that refers to. And, um, and he cites actually a former law clerk of his, Caleb Nelson, one of my favorite students, and an, another scholar, Will Bode, another one of my favorite students. Will was my head TA. They were both originally on the Biden Commission, the Judicial Reform Commission. So it is a, a small world, this world of America's constitution. These are the players going forward. These are the debates. These are debates about what kind of 
what flavor of originalism should we prefer? And then just to, you know, say what she says about the second point, which we've been talking about. She says, second and relatedly, the court avoids another, quote, ongoing scholarly debate, and then continuing with the site, um, unquote, or when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. Here, the lack of support for New York's law in either period makes it unnecessary to choose between them, but if 1791 is the benchmark, then New York's appeals to Reconstruction-era history would fail for the independent reason that this evidence is simply too late in addition to too little. So that's, that's what she says on that. It's interesting. This is her, very much her style, by the way. When she was uh, nominated, I think we took a look at uh, some of her uh, past, opinion, past uh, scholarly writings uh, as well as opinions, and she, uh, she, she likes to raise issues and not necessarily answer them. She did the same thing in her dissent, in, uh, in, I guess it was in her concurrent in Fulton. And she also cites Nelson. Her concurrence is, I think, two paragraphs. So we're not cherry-picking here. Here's the point. She's focusing on method issues. Kavanaugh is writing, and he began by talking about, well, there's the policy sweep and then what I call constitutional method or something. So Kavanaugh writes a concurrence limiting the policy sweep. She writes the concurrence all about method, which is what, in two paragraphs, what you should expect to see if, as I believe is the case, these opinions are announcing a methodological revolution, a methodological shift. I'm a shift by self-described, self-conscious originalists toward a thing called originalism, which comes in many flavors. The Clarence Thomas flavor, the Sam Alito flavor, the Amy Coney Barrett flavor, which has yet to be fully defined. Keel has one version of it, and Will Bode maybe has a different version of it. But this is a conversation among originalists engaging originalist scholars who have different understandings of how how to do it. So the people who are cited are people like Nelson and Bode and Michael McConnell and Kurt Lash and yours truly. Not just on the gun issue, the the substance of the thing, but the method questions. And we're going to apply this to the Carson case, but we're going to do that in our next episode. Uh, And uh, I think Akil has teed up nicely some... uh, some tasty morsels where we're going to look at the descent as well, and we'll put put this together. And then, having done that, and having looked at Dobbs, having looked at at Bruin, looked at Carson, and then I think then what we're going to do is okay. What what is the originalist formulation? What is the originalist approach? What is the originalist method? As Akil would apply it to not only these but to some other landmark cases, and I think that'll be a treat. We'll do a rapid fire. Uh, look at that. So all that's yeah, coming tw- up. Tw- 20 cases, 20 questions. What would this mean for all the big cases of the last century or something like, like, like that? But you're absolutely right, Andy. This nice little question about founders versus reconstructors makes all the difference in the world in the Carson case about religious vouchers, as you're going to see in the next episode. Okay. I look forward to it.